Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. There will be two major statewide initiatives on the ballot uh, this year, and we're going to break those down, uh, both of those on this episode. There's Prop 207, which is the initiative to legalize recreational marijuana in the state. And there's Prop 208, which is a tax hike on the rich to fund K-12 education. Let's start with Prop 207 to legalize recreational to legalize recreational marijuana. A ballot initiative in 2016 failed very narrowly, 51% uh, voted no. Uh, but just a quick summary here, and then we'll get your take on it. It would legalize recreational marijuana for those over uh, 21 or older. Uh, it would set up licensing through the Arizona Department of Health uh, and, and capping it. Similarly, from what I understand, similarly to the to the medical marijuana licensing cap. And correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on any of these, but the tax is 16% on on sales, and that would cover the uh, administration cost of the program and the extra funds um, that are left over from that 16% sales tax on on recreational marijuana sales would go to uh, community colleges, police, uh, and fire. Um, oh, one more thing on the licensing is that they're also setting up uh, a licensing uh, program about social equity um, ownership uh, program for, for communities that have been uh, disproportionately impacted by marijuana inc- incarcerations. Um, the, the, other, the other link to, uh, to incarcerations or, or the criminal justice element is that the, there's also an option on this initiative that sets up, um, expun- uh, people that have uh, been, been convicted for a possession under a certain amount or cultivation, uh, of marijuana can petition to have those, uh, convictions expunged. So there's a, they're also, they're also setting up, uh, an option, uh, for petitions to be expunged. There's also um, less restrictions on uh, what workplaces can do. From what I understand, that workplaces can still have a, a drug-free workplace. That is another change that was made from the 2016 one. Um, are there any other elements that I'm that I'm missing out here about this before we get your opinion on it? Uh, that covers the um, basics of the proposition. There's a self-dealing element to the granting of the licenses, which we can get into as, as we progress in the discussion. So there it is, uh, legalized marijuana for 21 and older, uh, setting up a licensing system, uh, taxing it at 16%, uh, having a opportunity for uh, petitioning for expunging, expungement for, for convictions. What is your analysis here? What's what's your opinion overall? Um, do you support the legalization of marijuana in the way that it's done with this initiative? Um, that's a a difficult question for me to answer. Um, I am uh, 
skeptical that this is the right next step. I do believe uh, that there should not be criminal consequences um, for the possession and use of small quantities of marijuana. The problem is, is that it remains illegal under federal law, and there's nothing that state law can do about that, uh, which places a lot of entities, the people who sell it, the people who buy it, uh, the banks that service it, law enforcement, uh, into a difficult dilemma. Um, so I think the right next step for Arizona would be simply to remove criminal penalties from our criminal code uh, for the possession and use of small quantities of uh, marijuana, in essence, uh, legalizing home cultivation and um, use, rather than leaping into establishing a new industry to provide recreational uh, marijuana commercially. Also, there is, as I mentioned, a great deal of self-dealing in this particular proposition. Uh, the uh, medical marijuana uh, industry is funding this particular initiative. Uh, the number of recreational marijuana outlets are sharply limited, uh, and the existing uh, medical marijuana providers who are funding the initiative uh, gets the first dibs uh, on the limited number of recreational marijuana licenses. Um, I also, while the initiative does do partially something that I've advocated that any legalization scheme include, uh, which is uh, regulating potency, um, since there is increasing evidence that high potent marijuana is associated with various uh, medical disorders and problems. The initiative allows that for edibles, um, but not for marijuana that you smoke. The argument from the industry is um, people can regulate the amount that they ingest uh, when they're smoking. That's less easily done with the edibles and therefore making the distinction uh, about regulating the potency of uh, the edibles and not regulating the potency of what is ingested. I'm just not in a position to evaluate uh, that claim. I will try to as the campaign progresses and uh, way in. But um, I don't believe that we should be ruining lives uh, by attaching criminal penalties uh, to the possession and consumption of marijuana. And right now, this is um, what would accomplish that result. Were you also against setting up you know, your stance on just decriminalizing it? And because it's illegal at the federal level, we're also against the establishment of the medical marijuana uh, industry. And uh, I mean, uh, the second part of the question is, it, you know, it seems like the federal government is showing basically showing no desire to shut any or actually enforce the federal law on this. There's 11 states that have already established their own programs. So is the risk just, it seems like there's no risk in terms of legality, but what is, so what is the issue uh, besides just being, on paper in 
unison with the, with the federal law. You well, know, the the um, Obama administration issued guidance to federal prosecutors saying don't enforce federal law against medical marijuana providers and consumers who were acting in compliance with state law. Um, I believe the Obama, I mean, the um, Trump administration withdrew that guidance, even though there haven't been uh, prosecutions uh, occur. I just don't think you should put people in a gray legal zone like that. I favor changing the federal law to remove marijuana as a controlled substance at the federal level. Um, the uh, Democratic Party platform calls for doing that. Um, so, and, and, and I don't think achieving the result that I think is most desirable, which is to remove the threat of criminal penalties attached to the consumption and possession of small amounts of marijuana, um, that can be accomplished by the step that I described, simply remove the criminal penalties for such, uh, without also setting up um, a the structure of a commercial enterprise. What 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 are what are your yeah, thoughts well, about this? I know that you've thought about this issue for quite a while. I, I mean, I think it makes sense, and um, most of our listeners uh, probably heard uh, earlier in the summer, or maybe before, definitely before COVID, uh, talking to Joe Demena, who was a, a lob, was a lobbyist for the medical uh, marijuana industry. The, I mean, the I just think. It just makes it just makes sense, and you know, from from a if you're even even coming from a conservative perspective, I mean, I don't know why conser the conservative perspective is looking at making making the making the government more involved in people's lives, I and mean, it's basically setting up, uh, you know, a government forcing you to stop putting something in your body. I mean, it's it's um, of. Of course, it has it has risks, and it's it's a drug, just like uh, any other drug that that someone might decide to put in their body. But I think, I think the the people who are making it, uh, like it, people that are making the health scare argument uh, in, in terms of society, there's there's legitimate concerns about that, sure. But um, it's out there right now. If a kid wants to get it. They can get it if if uh, if a young adult wants to get it, they can get it. And the difference in in the way that this is set up is that you actually can know exactly the the dose that you're taking, rather than it just being on the street. And and I'm someone might say, well, if that's the case, everyone breaks every law. Why have laws at all? But um, I just think it's uh, it's a recreational. Substance, uh, it can be medicinal for people. We don't, I mean, we don't know what the, there hasn't been a, the, the, the rigorous scientific studies on it that, that I would like to see in terms of um, medicinal applications. So I don't know. I just think, I just think it makes sense. I think it's, it's, it's totally ridiculous to be uh, throwing people in jail and, 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 and ruining people's lives over, over this plant. Well, I, I do believe that ultimately um, having a commercial industry um, because you can 
regulate particularly dosage uh, and purity um, uh, is ultimately the right solution. I just think that you need to have action at the federal level before you allow a commercial industry to occur and removing the largest problem, which is indeed uh, people being subject to criminal sanction uh, for possession and use uh, can be achieved at the state level without putting right. everybody in that gray zone. Right. And I, and I do think there needs to be some public education about it because I think there's a lot of young people who just think there's absolutely nothing wrong with it and you can just smoke weed all day and, and everything's fine. I think there are, um, you know, it's not a good thing to be, to be high all the time. And even though a lot of, a lot of kids might, might have that perception. Um, but I just think there needs to be a more, a more honest, um, education campaign about that. And maybe that would happen if it, if it was legal, um, well, and more and more public health awareness about it. And in terms of, of the conservative perspective, this is one of those points where libertarian conservatism clashes with social conservatism. The, li right. the libertarian conservative says um, the government shouldn't be in the business of incarcerating people for uh, consuming or possessing marijuana uh, and trying to uh, use the criminal law to uh, enforce uh, what the government regards as good behavior. Whereas the social conservative believes that that is one of the functions of the law uh, and that um, marijuana can be, particularly in high potency, highly dangerous. And that is something government should act to protect against. Uh, and the criminal law is a useful tool to accomplish that. So you have in this issue, well captured, kind of a classical point of tension between libertarian conservatism and social conservatism. All righty. So it, it barely, barely lost last time. It seems like the polling is, is better this time and they fixed some of the, uh, some, some of the issues, especially the last, last thing they fixed was about the gummies and the, and the advertising kind of thing um, for, for marijuana. Well, and, and um, I don't think there will be nearly as robust an opposition campaign this yeah. time as there was last time, um, and in part because of our next subject, uh, an awful yep. lot of the money that got funneled into uh, fighting legalized marijuana uh, last time around uh, will get funneled into trying to defeat Proposition 208 and the personal income tax hike. Yep, so this is seems like setting up to be a titanic political battle uh, on top of all the other ones that seem to be being waged right now. But Prop 208 is a tax hike uh, for education funding. Uh, it is a uh, a surcharge of 3.5%. Um, the other, uh, the no campaign would call that a 77.7% .7 increase on income on individuals over 250,000 a year filing individually or 500,000 a year uh, filing jointly. And where does that money go into? 50% um, of it is set up, and what we can talk about and break this down more, because 50% is set up as grants uh, to school districts, charters, and state schools for the deaf and blind in proportion to the weighted student count. Um, 
there is 25% that goes to, um, I'm just reading this off the, um, it's actually off the 75% of the money goes to school districts for salary increases. The lion's share of that is, is, uh, designated for teachers and classroom support personnel, which is very broadly defined as uh, nurses, librarians, a variety of different uh, professional groups. Uh, and then the smaller share is set aside uh, for what's called school support personnel or something like that. And that's the uh, people who serve lunch, uh, run the buses, the custodial staff. Uh, and then the rest of the money gets sort of spread in a variety of different directions. So there's there's 12 percent to the uh, Career Training Workforce Fund. There's three percent to the Arizona Teachers Academy Fund, that's supposed to train teachers. So I guess I was just looking at this. So I guess the difference is 50 percent is going to uh, compensate for teachers and classroom support, and then 25 is going to student support. Uh, services. So this isn't, um, did they, I know on this, on the 2018 one, they, they changed the definition of a teacher by state law. Is that, uh, is that definition still in change? Is that still altered? And does that matter for, for this one in the same way that it was no, for the 2018 well, one? Well, it still means that um, a much smaller fraction of the total will be going to teachers than if you put all the money in increased teacher salaries. Uh, they did it a little bit more straightforward uh, this time around. Rather than redefine teacher, uh, they uh, created the category of classroom support personnel uh, and all the people that the expanded definition of teacher included, uh, like librarians and nurses, um, speech pathologists, um, they're, they're not redefined as teachers, uh, but they are eligible for the same pot of money uh, that is uh, where any increase in teacher salaries will come out of. So you still, money, you still have the dilution effect, even if you don't have the weird definitional change. Could, could schools take that money and spend it on something else like curriculum or uh, an, an admin position or um, other things? They, they would be stretching the law. The, the law says that this money is to be used for compensation and base compensation, and that's one of the problems um, with it. Uh, not for those other things. Now, probably some administrative personnel could be could have their job defined in a way that it would fit under the classroom support personnel. Um, um, so I think that they probably some of their administrative staff they could probably make eligible if they chose to do so. Um, but that would be stretching the law and certainly spending it on anything other than compensation um, would would violate the law. Is there any, I mean, is there any projection on like, is this going to increase teacher salaries by a certain amount? Uh, I know that um, 
I saw an analysis by by Sean McCarthy of the Arizona Tax Research Association. Uh, he was on the podcast also uh, right before uh, coronavirus happened, uh, talking about his uh, his uh, book on school, on Arizona school finance. But his his analysis said that um, it pro- due to the volatility of the um, the fund that it's drawing from that it would probably not end up going into the base salary that it would go into that it would end up being a a, a grant um, or a, a, excuse me a, you know kind of like a bonus and so reading that it, it kind of seemed like well how much how much are teachers really going to get from this if, you know, are they going to use it for hiring other teachers? And so the, the teachers that are currently here won't, won't get that much of an increase. Um, and I haven't, I haven't seen a, any other comprehensive analysis like the one that, um, that Sean did from, from what you gather from, from, from what you've looked at, uh, will, will the average teacher get a significant raise across the board in Arizona from, from the way this is written. Um, there is a serious problem here with the way the initiative is uh, crafted, uh, which makes me doubtful uh, that there will be significant increases in base compensation uh, as a result of the passage of this proposition. Um, Sean is absolutely correct. Um, revenues from uh, these high-income taxpayers uh, is highly volatile, um, and most of the money will actually come from people who are making over a million dollars a year, and um, people who are that high uh, of an income um, receive a lot of investment income, uh, a lot of distribution of business profits, uh, and how much the state gets from those people in any given year goes up and down a lot and can actually go down during recessions, not just a slower rate of increase. Um, districts can will have to decide how much of the money which they receive, and they get twice a year distributions of these collections. Um, they want to put into hiring new teachers. That's one of the allowed purposes. Uh, increase compensation to existing teachers or increase compensation to the other classroom um, support personnel. Like and that includes counselors? That includes counselors. It includes a wide range of education professionals who aren't classroom uh, teachers. So you have that first distributional decision. Uh, and uh, given how volatile the revenue is going to be, even though the initiative contemplates increases in base salaries, I think that Sean is correct, uh, that districts will be highly reluctant to do that uh, because not only is the rate of increase uh, something that is highly volatile, um, revenue from this particular group often goes down uh, during recessionary times. So if it gets folded into base compensation and what the districts get from this revenue source actually goes down, uh, where are the districts going to get the money uh, to maintain the base salary commitment? Um, so I do think it's highly likely, even though 
the initiative contemplates increases in base salaries, that um, the only prudent thing for a district or a charter school to do uh, is to treat it as uh, one-time money uh, twice a year and decide what you do in the, in the form of bonuses. Could you talk about the business element of it? I think that's a major, a major disconnect between, I mean, obviously both sides are going to be making strong arguments and, and, and trying to, you know, maybe misrepresent certain side. I don't know how much, I guess, I, I guess I'm saying, I don't know how much this is a disconnect or, or how much is just not understanding the, the impact on businesses because, um, the, the no 208 side is saying this is going to be really, really bad for small businesses. But if you talk to the yes to a side or see some of the stuff they're saying, they're saying it will not affect small businesses and it will be good for business because education, bettering education is going to help have a better workforce in the economy. Uh, Prop 208 will have a um, very detrimental effect on um, highly successful small businesses. Businesses can take a variety of forms of organization. In the regular corporate form, um, taxes on profits are paid by the corporation. Um, most uh, all small businesses and a large um, share of medium businesses uh, don't take a regular uh, corporate form. Uh, they take what's called a pass-through form. Uh, Subchapter S is the most common example. In these pass-through forms, the corporation itself pays no taxes. And in Arizona, the, corp the highest corporate tax rate is 4.9%. Uh, this proposition would in, would make the highest individual income tax rate 8%. Uh, in pass-through enterprises, um, the profits aren't taxed at the corporate level. They are attributed to the owners of the business and paid at the personal level. So uh, business profits for pass-through businesses, the maximum tax rate is going to increase from 4.5 to 8% and be higher for small business than the Arizona corporate income tax rate that applies to large businesses. Another aspect of this that people, unless you've been one of these businesses or are, are very conversant with it, and I did have such a business at one point in time in my life, um, even though the individual owners pay taxes on the profits, uh, they oftentimes can't take all of it out of the business. They have to leave it in the business as working capital. Um, so, uh, but it only applies to businesses that are producing um, very large um, profits that get attributed to the small uh, businesses. Those are sort of the backbone of our economy. Um, so even though it won't affect most small businesses, it will have a large effect on highly successful small businesses um, and to the detriment of them and, in my judgment, to the Arizona economy. And, that and, 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 and said, it's unfair because you're going to be taxing small business 
profits at a higher rate in Arizona than big business profits. And that capital you're talking about that you can't necessarily pocket, but you have to leave in your business in order to pay the bills. But that, but that would still be taxed as business profit. Yes. That, that yes. capital. So, yes. Whatever. So at the end of the year, um, you have a profit that gets attributed to the uh, owners and the owners have to pay personal income taxes at whatever the prevailing, the applicable rate is at that point in time. But the business is still going on. Uh, you have to pay employee salaries. You have to buy uh, whatever your inputs to whatever product or service that you're provided. Uh, and you usually collect in arrears. You have to come up with those expenses in advance uh, and you collect revenue from whoever you sell it to at some later date. Um, so um, business, small business owners um, at the end of the year uh, have to decide whether to leave some of that profit, even though they're going to be taxed on all of it, in the business to serve as working capital uh, or take all the money out and take out a loan or something to provide the working capital. Um, so it, it, it oftentimes small business owners are taxed on profits um, that they uh, earned uh, but can't currently take out of the business. Now, when you close down the business or sell the business, you get money that you've already paid the tax on. So you ultimately are made whole. But in the interim, you've got the question of how do you come up with the working capital you need to keep the enterprise going. And many small business owners choose to leave some of the profits on which they're going to be taxed at work uh, in their business so that they're not taking out loans or trying to come up with the working capital uh, some other way. How would a business then respond to that? Like you got to, let's say you, get, you own a, you own a business that's making above that amount. You have a few employees. How would you, if you, what are the different ways that owners will respond to that? Well, you can respond in a variety of ways. Um, obviously your profits are going to be less. Um, so what you can invest in your business is less than it would have been at, uh, the old uh, tax rate. So there'll be a reduction in business investment, which means a reduction in uh, business expansion or higher compensation to your employees or however you deal with uh, the reduction in operating capital that you have because of the higher tax. Uh, you also can uh, increase consumption. Um, you can decide that you know, your business needs a fine art collection. Uh, and reduce your profitability that way. Um, de depending upon what the um, amounts involved are, it will probably pay some businesses uh, to convert from being a pass-through entity to being a regular corporation and reduce the tax on their profits from 8% to 4.9%. Um, Arizona, for a long time, taxed uh, corporate profits at a much lower rate than the uh, individual income was. Uh, we have kind of equalized that. The, the top individual rate now is 4.5%. Uh, 
The top corporate rate is 4.9%. That's not enough to really affect a choice about what form of organization makes the best sense uh, for a particular business, but you, you increase that to effectively um, 3% of your profits. Um, if you're making a lot of profit, that might behoove you to uh, convert. This is one of many reasons uh, that the tax is highly unlikely to produce the income uh, that is being projected. Uh, the projections assume that everybody does exactly what they're doing now and they make exactly the same yeah. amount of money that they're doing now and do not react in any way to try to avoid paying this tax. Uh, that's not going to happen. And so um, not only is what teachers and others get out of it at doubt and subject to high volatility, uh, in my judgment, the tax is going to produce um, some substantially lower amount uh, than is currently being projected. If you had to bet on it, you think this one is going to pass or not, 208? If, if Prop 208 uh, passes, it will be a stronger indication than anything else that might happen in this election uh, that Arizona politics have just completely changed. Uh, it would give us uh, the ninth highest uh, marginal personal income tax rate in the country. Uh, we would be substantially higher than all of our neighboring states except for California. Um, and uh, if, the, if the Arizona electorate is willing to run that economic risk for such uncertain gains for education, uh, then it will mean that uh, the political climate and culture in Arizona has dramatically shifted uh, to the left. Well, let's leave it there for this episode. Last question. Did you hear that Steve Nash got hired to be the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets? I did. Believe it or not, <laughs> that was a piece of <laughs> news that, that penetrated my quarantine against professional sports news. How do you think they're going to do? You think he's going to lead K KD to the KD and Kyrie to the title well, next year? Once again, your, if, your opinion will sports. be uh, better informed and <laughs> undoubtedly more interesting. I think, I mean, Nash was such a creative player. He's a smart, smart guy. I don't know if that translates uh, into, into coaching. Um, but what's your, your view? I just think it'll be fun to watch. I just think it'll be fun. I mean, I don't, I don't know how it seems like LeBron's over there coaching himself anyways, most of the time. <laughs> and I think a lot of these guys, I mean, they have, they have plays and they have sets. I think, I mean, I think the Suns coach Monty Williams has a big impact on the culture of the team and in that kind of leadership. But I think that has a chance to be a really cool, really fun, really fun team to watch. Well, thanks to everyone for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. Uh, you can find us and listen and subscribe on any podcasting app. Thanks.